Good morning, what an amazing sunny day, beautiful day. Well done for being here rather than down on the beach. I think half the congregation are probably down on the beach, but so well done for the faithful half being here this morning. Um, get down to the beach later. Uh, welcome back to Mr. and Mrs. Paget. <laughs> Having had two sunny weeks in Snowdonia, back to start married life here in the glories of Paul. Wonderful to have you back. Okay, this is our last regular Sunday of the term. Next weekend, as Carlos said, we're away at our weekend away, and then we're into school holidays, and everything's a bit different, but different pace of life. Life groups start, stop, our normal midweek activities all take a pause for a few weeks. So this is the, the last normal, so, so to call it, Sunday of the term before we relaunch again in September. It's also, we're also concluding a long teaching series that we've been doing called A House for My Name, based on this book by Peter Lightheart. And uh, the aim of this series has been to help us to see the story of who Jesus is through the story of the Old Testament, that you can't really know somebody unless you know somebody of their family history. And we want to know Jesus, and to know Jesus, we need to know the story of Jesus' history, which is the story of the Old Testament. And that's what we've been trying to do for these last nine months, helping you to understand, read, uh, appreciate the Old Testament more fully. Now, it might be, I doubt it, but there might be somebody who has been here for all 30 of these messages. I'd be amazed if anybody has. Certainly, I haven't. Um, uh, but perhaps there is somebody who's been here for all 30. If you have, I hope you've appreciated this series and learned from it. It's helped you grow in your appreciation and understanding of the Old Testament. If it's your very first Sunday, you haven't this is your, the only one out of 30 messages in this series that you're going to hear. That's fine as well, because what I want to do today is, is to give a, a Genesis to Revelation sweep of the story of what the Bible teaches and how that helps us to see who Jesus is and what that means for us. So that's what I'm hoping to do this morning. We're going to start first verse of the Bible, and then we'll finish in the very last verse of the Bible. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible pictures the earth as a house, as a three-story house. And the book of Genesis describes God's creation of this house. And it's set on, founda on foundations. There's a blue sky, which we see today, stretched out like a tent. And there are pillars that support the earth and the heaven. That's the, the imagery of uh, of how God creates the earth. And it takes God six days to build this three-story house. The first three days of creation, God makes the house by dividing things. He divides light from dark. He divides the waters above, the waters in the sky from the waters below. And then he divides the waters, the seas, from the dry land. The second three days of creation, God fills up the house fills up the three stories of his house. There's the sun and the moon and the stars to fill the daytime and the nighttime. There are birds to fill the sky and fish to fill the waters. And then there are animals and ultimately human beings to fill the land. And so after six days, the three-story house the Lord is making is complete. And then we have the most important day, which is Sabbath, the seventh day. This is a day in which God sits back and enjoys his house. He sits back and says, this is what I've made. It's good. It's very good. And God rested on the seventh day. 
And at that point in the story, we get a picture of what God intends for the earth and intends for us. God has built a paradise, a house for his name, which he wants to enjoy with the men and women he has created to fill it and to steward it for him. And we, it's so important, this is so fundamental to the, the Christian story, got to see this as the starting point which sets the trajectory for everything else that has come in the history of the world. And this is a very different story from the secular origin story which we're normally taught. What the Bible teaches us is that the creation of the world, our existence, isn't random, isn't just because of cosmic chance and primordial soup and something getting cooked up. No, there is an intentionality, a creativity by God to make a house in which he wants to dwell with us, with people. And, and, and there's, there's a beauty and an intentionality about this. And this, this story explains the rest of history so much more thoroughly and satisfyingly than the secular creation story, the secular origin story. Uh, it, it explains why we are here, the, the fundamental question of human existence. Why does life exist? Why do we exist? The Christian story tells us it's because God intended, God created, God made us to live in the house, to share the house with him, to live in paradise with him. And it explains the human longings that we have. Why is it that as human beings we care about truth and desire beauty and want to know love and have this sense of eternity in our hearts? Why is it that we find death so hard and objectionable? Why is it we have this consciousness of life and a desire for life to continue. The creation story told us in the Bible explains these longings that we have for truth and beauty and love and eternity because we were made to know and live with God forever. And this story also explains the mess that we see in the world far more completely and satisfyingly than does the secular story. We see that the story of Genesis, the book of beginnings, has eternal significance. We can see the beauty of the house that God made for, for us. And we also see the reality of what our turning away from God has meant, that God filled the earth, made it beautiful so that we could dwell in it with him. And we human beings have so often done the opposite. We've emptied the earth. We emptied the sea of fish, which God had filled with fish. We've filled it instead with plastic, and we've cleared the land of the trees, and we've poisoned the rivers, and we've killed the animals. We've, we've done the reverse of what God had done. And these environmental disasters which we see in the world around us are a symptom of the bigger problem we have, that humanity, the human race, has lost its freedom. And this is why life so often feels like it does, why so often life feels like we uh, in some measure, trapped or captive or limited or unfree. The reality is that the natural human condition, because of our turning from God, is slavery. When we think of slavery, we immediately turn our minds, of course, very contemporary issue. We turn our minds to the, to the transatlantic slave trade, but actually the, the natural state of humanity is one of slavery. Just think about human history. Most people in most places at most times have lived under some kind of tyranny. Most people have not lived in democratic, liberal freedom. Most people have lived under some kind of tyrannical rule, authority. And many people through the ages, countless people through the ages, have been actual slaves owned by someone else. And even those who seem most free actually exhibit 
the symptoms of slavery. Think of a friend of mine describing what it was like to work at Goldman Sachs, the ultimate career move, get a job at Goldman Sachs, become a master of the universe, make millions of pounds, but a sense of slavery because of the pressure of the work and the demands. And as he talked through his job, I thought, that doesn't sound like freedom. That sounds like slavery. That doesn't sound like you're a master of the universe. That sounds like you're a serf. And that's how often the human condition really is. But God didn't give up on the human race. God was still intent to build his house. And so God calls. He calls a man. He calls Abraham and promises Abraham that through him all nations of the earth will be blessed. God's going to build a house through him. And Abraham has a son Isaac and Isaac has a son Jacob. And God says that for them and through them he's going to build his house. But as we read the story of Abraham's descendants, we see that even they are not able to shake off the captivity which so often comes and clings to them, but also that God never stops his saving work of rescuing them. And so we get to the great story of Jacob and his sons going down to Egypt, going to find rescue because they're starving. And so they go to Egypt where there's food. They're led in by Joseph, Jacob's son, who becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man, his prime minister. But they're there for hundreds of years, and over those hundreds of years, they become slaves, finally to be led out by Moses. And this is a story of rescue that becomes the model story, the archetypal story, the foundational story of what God does for his people. And as we follow the story through, we see there is exodus after exodus. There's a great exodus as God through Moses leads his people out of Egypt. But again and again, we encounter individuals in the story where God carries out an exodus in their lives. Stories of what looks like it's dead, being made alive. People who look like they're far from God's blessing, coming into the blessing of God. And this is our story as Christians. And as we read through the Old Testament, we find the story is always leaping ahead to the work of Christ. As we read the story of the human race's rebellion against God and God's determination to rescue the human race, as we read about how slavery, captivity, keeps catching men and women again, and how about God wants to bring freedom to us, we keep leaping ahead to the work of Christ. What we see in the Exodus story is a, a foretelling, a precursor to what Christ does for us. There's a a pattern which God calls his people to live in, not a pattern of slavery, but a life of freedom. And God in Jesus Christ has rescued us for freedom. The cross of Christ is, is an exodus moment, which is a crossing. The, the death of Christ means that we can cross out of slavery, out of captivity, into freedom, into life, that we're called to live as Exodus people. We're called to live as free people in a land of milk and honey in God's house. That's the story keeps leaping ahead to that story of Christ and what he has done, but we're getting ahead of the story. Once the people are freed from slavery in Egypt, God establishes a priesthood, men from the tribe of Levi who are to minister before him in the, in the tabernacle, the tent of God's presence, the house of God's presence. And what the priesthood is meant to do is to ensure that there is a purity of worship, that God is worshipped as God should be worshipped. And there's a, a beauty about worship which is offered to God. Because what we see throughout the story is that ugliness is demeaning. Sin is ugly, and sin brings ugliness to the human experience. And when the priesthood is established, it's meant to be pure. It's meant to be beautiful, right worship being offered to God. 
But the day is coming, the story tells us, when it won't just be the Levites who serve before God as priests, but all God's people will be priests. Because God's plan is still to build a house for his name. And what is represented in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, where the Israelites gather to worship, is what God intends to happen throughout the earth. That there will be beauty, and there will be worship, and there will be forgiveness, and there will be authority. Ugliness will be swept away, and idolatry will be swept away, and sin will be swept away, and oppression and captivity will be swept away. Because that freedom is what the human race was created for. That's the world that you and I were made for. It's a promise. It's the offer that God keeps giving to his people. But God's people keep repeating the sin of their father, Adam. They don't see how blessed they are, and they keep hankering after other things. This is the human problem, that rather than accepting and receiving God's gift to us, we so often turn away. We throw it back in God's face, seek to go our own way, and just end up enmeshed in our captivity and our mess again. And the people of Israel even wish for slavery again. They wish they were back in Egypt. They wish they were slaves again. They wish for their captivity rather than the freedom and life that God offers them. And even when they finally enter the land which God has promised them, their their rebellion continues, their rejection of God continues. Ugliness keeps replacing beauty. Captivity keeps replacing freedom. What they need is someone to sort out the mess. They need a leader to lead them into freedom, into life, into beauty. But who's going to do it? It's a bit like our current situation where eight or nine, depending how you count it, people so far declared their intent to want to lead the Conservative Party. Perhaps 20 people might throw their hats into the ring. Who on earth is able to lead the nation? And that's the kind of issue we see in the story of God's people. Who can lead us? actually to something which is to where we should be. And so we get to the stories of the judges, heroes, and some of those are better and some of them are worse at fixing the mess, but there's never a real solution to the problem of captivity and sin and ugliness. And the book of Judges itself ends in a place of anarchy, Judges 21-25. In those days, Israel had no king Everyone did as they saw fit. And that's a description which might look like utopia. It's freedom. Everybody does what they want, but it's not utopia. It's chaos, anarchy, horror. As pain, ugliness, murder, rape inflict and infect their society. Keeping corruption out of the system is a never-ending battle. As we read through this story, we see that the myth of the fundamental goodness of the human race. We see that humans left to their own devices are not fundamentally good. We see that humans left to their own devices always lean into sin, into ugliness, always end up in a place of captivity, always end up in unfreedom rather than freedom. The judges have failed. All the leaders have failed. What next? Well, the people need a king, a king who can represent God. And so God gives them a king. He gives them King Saul, who starts off so well but ends up so badly. God gives them David, the great king, who does represent God but is a man himself so deeply flawed in many ways. And then David's son Solomon, 
at which things seem to reach their pinnacle. Finally, it looks like God's people are going to enjoy God's presence in God's house. Solomon at last builds the temple, a place for God's to dwell. First Kings 8, it says, When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. Solomon builds a house for God, and God's presence fills it. And then Solomon builds his palace next to the temple, and it looks like this is it. God's presence in God's house, and God's king leading God's people. It looks like heaven has come to earth. But then the old pattern repeats. Solomon falls into sin, and the kingdom is snatched away and torn in two. And at one level, this looks just like a bog-standard power squabble. A leader falls. Who's going to pick up the pieces of fight for power? But something more profound is going on in this story. What we see is that there's actually a, a fight for the heart of worship. After Solomon dies and his kingdom is split in two, there's a, a fight for where the people are going to worship and how they're going to worship. Should they worship God in the Jerusalem temple or should they worship God in the shrines that are built in the other cities of Bethel and Dan? It's a fight for the control of worship because the person who controls what is worshipped controls everything. Are you going to worship God truly as you should as a real priestly people or are you going to worship something else? Who are you going to worship? How are you going to worship? Gathering with God's people to worship is not just a lifestyle choice. It's a declaration of allegiance. It's an act of war. Us gathering here this morning to worship Jesus is an act of spiritual warfare. We're saying that our priority, our commitments, our desire is to be in the house of God with God's people, worshiping the living God in grace and truth, in purity and power. That's why we gather. It's always about a fight for worship. Worshipping the living God. And the tragedy is how rarely the people, as we read through the story, how really rarely they made that decision and that declaration. And rather than having good kings who would lead them into the worship of the true God, we see a, a litany of, of bad kings who lead them into the ways of the nations, lead them into sin, lead them into idolatry, lead them into corruption, lead them into captivity. But God isn't done with his people. God is still wanting to build his house, a house for his name. And so God sends the prophets who speak into this situation, the prophets who speak warnings and plead with the people to change their ways and speak the promises of God of what God will do. But the people still reject God. And finally, as a consequence, utter ruin befalls them. And they're carried into exile, away from their homeland, away from the temple away from the presence of God. Seventy years passes. God in his mercy isn't finished. Some of the exiles return to Jerusalem. The temple is finally rebuilt, but it's a hard, scrabble existence. There's nothing apparently glorious. Is this it? Is this the pinnacle of what God has planned? A tiny group of people in a flea-bitten corner of the Mediterranean. Is this it? Is this really the house of God? And then there's 400 years of silence in which the prophets don't speak, in which God doesn't seem to speak, 
And it's a question of, has God forgotten? Has God given up? Is God not going to build his house? Has God finally said enough is enough? I'm just going to give up on these people, these, these humans. But God doesn't forget. And God doesn't stop working. There's a lesson for us here. The people of Israel had 400 years of silence. And sometimes in our lives there are times when it can seem like God isn't speaking or it might, we might feel, has God forgotten me? We need to remember that God never forgets and God doesn't stop working. That's what we see in this story. Because we turn from this 400 years of silence and open the first page of the first book of the New Testament and read this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Suddenly, the rescuer, the king, appears. The true descendant of Abraham, the true son of David, the Messiah, the Lord. This is what the story has been building to. God has not been caught by surprise at any point. In all the people's rebellion and rejection of him, in all their repeated wanderings, in all their repeated throwing themselves back into slavery and captivity, God has not been caught by surprise. His plan was always that Jesus the Messiah would enter the human story, that through Jesus the Messiah, we finally might be brought into freedom and life and liberty. And so the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, that when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. When the set time had fully come, after all those hundreds, after all those thousands of years, Jesus, the Messiah, enters human history. Jesus, the one who perfectly fulfilled the will of his Father. Jesus, the one who did what the people of Israel didn't do. Jesus, the one who did what the judges couldn't do, did what the kings failed to do. Jesus, the perfect son of the house. Jesus, who fully, perfectly obeyed his father's will, lived utterly in obedience to God. And Jesus himself was born into a kind of captivity. He was born under the law. He was born in captivity in order to bring us into liberty. His death on the cross is what brings us to life. His death on our behalf is what brings us into freedom and sonship and belonging. Our our captivity, our mess, dealt with, destroyed, defeated by Jesus Christ. It's what the whole story's been about. It's about the coming of a rescuer, a savior, a king. And where the story drives is that God is building a house for his name. What, What began in Genesis, in our telling the story, concludes in the book of Revelation. We start with the story of creation, and we end with a picture of new creation, of what God is going to do for us, for his people. The Apostle John is given this vision of what the new Jerusalem will look like, of what Eden restored will be like. This is what it says, Revelation 21. I did not see a temple in the city, Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory 
and honor of the nations be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The story begins with a house, and it ends with a house. The story ends with this house, which is like the house that God created in the book of Genesis, but also wonderfully different. The first house was lit by the sun and the moon and the stars. This house is going to be lit by the glory of God. Won't even need the sun, because God's glory will fill it. The first house was filled. It was filled with life, with birds and animals and fish. And the promise, the vision tells us that all that is best from the old house somehow will be carried in. The, The glory and honor of the nations be brought into this new house. Everything that's best about this earth is going to be carried in to fill and beautify the new house. The first house is full of life. It's full of animals, full of plants, trees, and this new house will be full of life as well. There is a river which is the water of life from which we will drink. There's a tree which will not lead to our downfall, but a tree which will bring us our healing and eternal life somehow will feed us. The nations, broken, captive, will be healed in this new house. All the curse, all the corruption, the pollution, the sin of this earth will be swept clean. And unlike that first house, it will be impossible for sin, it will be impossible for the curse to enter in. It will be impossible for the citizens of this house to, to, to be put into exile. Why? Because of our adoption as children of God, our union with Christ. In this new house, we're going to be those who are somehow joined with Christ. We're going to be participants in the marriage supper of the Lamb. As those who are fully included in Christ, it will be impossible for us to fall into temptation and sin. The curse will be swept away forever. Our exile will be over. We'll enter into paradise. God always gets what he wants. And God's intent is to build this house in which he will dwell with his people. And it's in this house that we will get what we have always most desired as well which is to dwell with God. That is what we were made for. We were made for a relationship with God. That is the answer to our longings. Where are we going to find truth and beauty and love and eternity? We're going to find it in the house of God. We're going to find it in the new Jerusalem. We're going to find it in our union 
with Christ. And this is the answer to our mess, the brokenness, the pain, the sin, the corruption, the pollution, in every sense, environmentally, physically, emotionally, all of it, the answer to our mess is found in Christ and the house that he is preparing for us. The first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The very last verse of the Bible, Revelation 22, 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. This is the story the Bible tells us. This is our story. This is the story we enter into when we come into relationship with, with Christ. We know it. How, why are we here? Because in the beginning, God created heaven and the earth. What was God's plan to build a house for him and for his people to enjoy? Where does the story of the human race end? It ends with grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. We're going to step into a full experience of God's grace. And so we need to anticipate what is to come. There are all kinds of things we can anticipate, all kinds of things we anticipate in life. There might be things over the next few weeks you're really anticipating. We need to have this anticipation of what it will be to dwell forever in the house of God, in the heavenly city, in the new Jerusalem, to swim and bathe in the river of life, to eat from the tree that brings healing to the nations, to bask in the glory of God that will fill that place with his light and splendor. We need to anticipate that. And we need to live in the good of it now. That those of us who've entered into relationship with Christ already, in a sense, have passed over. We've crossed over. We have been through this exodus. Christ's death and resurrection means that we are already citizens of this new Jerusalem, of this heavenly city. We already belong. We're already members. And so our lives should reflect that in how we live and love and serve and beautify and, and, and live in our freedom and the liberty that Christ has given us. We get taste of it. We're meant to get taste of it as we gather to worship. When we gather on a Sunday, we're meant to get tastes of what the heavenly city will be like. Next weekend, I believe, when we're together away, we'll have more of a taste. We'll have a picture of it. God's people gather together in glorious sunshine, enjoying God's presence. I think we're going to get a taste a little tiny taste, a fractional taste, a, a molecule of taste compared with the great feast that awaits us. But there'll be a taste. It's my anticipation. Let's come with faith next weekend. Let's come with faith that God is going to speak to us, minister to us, work in us, help us, empower us, strengthen us, fill our hearts with fresh love and vision. Let's believe for beauty and truth and love to be our experience next weekend as the people of God gather together. We anticipate now and we experience in part what is ours forever. When we take communion in a few minutes' time, we take a tiny little bit of grape juice and a tiny little bit of gluten-free bread. <laughs> Nothing very exciting about that. It's hardly a feast. It's an anticipation of what is ours in the heavenly feast. And that's how our life is as Christians at this time. We live in the reality of the world as it is, a world which is still captive to sin and ugliness, to pollution, where the natural human condition is one of slavery. And yet we anticipate, we taste, we know the reality of our destiny as people who are called to life, to freedom, to liberty, to love, to truth, to beauty. This is what God has made us for. This is what God has promised us. And this is what we get a taste of now.
as citizens of his kingdom. That's the story. That's the story of Jesus Christ. And it's such good news. Jesus, we thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you. You haven't left us, abandoned us. But you've come to us, drawn near to us. And by your death and resurrection have made a way open for us to enter into your presence. To have an experience now, a taste of all that is ours for eternity. Lord, thank you for what we can anticipate of a world made new, of God's house fully complete, of, Lord, what it will be to be in your presence fully, to somehow see the glory of God shining even more brightly than the sun does upon us today. Lord, what a thought, what 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 a vision. I pray for us, Jesus. I pray that we would... We would live now in light of all that we're going to be in you, all that you've made us for. I pray that we would be people who do live in the truth and do live in God's grace and do bring some beauty to the world and do walk in freedom and do know the reality of life pulsing in us because you are at work in us and the Spirit has been given to us as a deposit and guarantee of all that is to come. Lord, thank you that one day we'll sit at the wedding feast with you. Thank you that one day we'll bathe in that river of life. Lord, thank you that this day we can take the bread and the wine and remind ourselves of all you've done. Thank you that next weekend we can gather and get a slightly bigger taste of what it is to be the people of God and all that we anticipate. Lord, I pray for us. I pray that it would be those who live in the truth of the story, who are clear about who we are, because we know who you are, what that means for us now, and what it means for eternity. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news. Thank you, Jesus, for your rescue of us. Thank you that you are the great son of David. Thank you that you are the fulfiller of of all the stories and all the plans that God had. Thank you that you came at just the right time, and you have rescued us. We love you, Jesus. Amen.